China grows its nuclear arsenal, and the US Navy hits its retention goals despite a recruiting crisis. All of that and more, today, October 20th, 2023. Good morning, early birds. I'm Jonathan Lairfeld, and this is the Early Bird Brief, produced by Defense News and Military Times. Just a quick note, Monday is the 40-year anniversary of the attack in Beirut, Lebanon, that killed 241 U.S. service members. Join us Monday for a conversation about the way that attack shapes Marines and the Marine Corps even today. Now, back to today's episode. First up, China's nuclear arsenal has more than doubled in the last three years. That's amid what a senior Pentagon official calls a major expansion of their nuclear forces. As of May 2023, China had around 500 operational nuclear warheads, according to the just-released China Military Power Report. The report is an annual catalog of the People Liberation's army strength. The last time a number was given was in the 2020 report. Then, the stockpile was said to be in the low 200s. The Pentagon still expects that China will possess more than 1,000 operational warheads by the end of the decade. A senior defense official, who spoke to reporters on background, said the growth so far has been faster than expected. The report found China has also been increasing its inventory of nuclear delivery systems on land, sea, and air. The report said China likely finished construction on three new solid propellant silo fields in 2022. Those house 300 intercontinental ballistic missile silos. The document states some ICBMs are probably loaded into silos already. China also has been adding to its silos for liquid-fueled ICBMs. The report assesses together the investments are pushing its nuclear force to a launch-on warning posture or the ability to fire more quickly. Expanding its stock of warheads has been a priority for Beijing in its decades-long push to modernize its military. Chinese leader Xi Jinping has tasked the People's Liberation Army to become a world-class military by 2049. That's the 100-year anniversary of the People's Republic of China. By 2035, though, that modernization is supposed to be basically complete in the words of the Chinese leader. At the end of September, the Defense Department released an updated strategy to counter weapons of mass destruction. The last time it released such a plan was in 2014. At that time, the Pentagon's focus in the area was on terrorist groups and rogue states like Iran and North Korea. The strategy deals with growing nuclear threats seen in China, North Korea, and Iran. Arms control agreements have also eroded. In 2018 and 2020, the U.S. withdrew from such treaties, and Russia has routinely teased the use of nuclear weapons against Ukraine and its allies. According to the Federation of American Scientists, the U.S. and Russia each have more than 5,000 nuclear warheads, almost 90% of the world's stockpiles. Another important story? Although the Navy is struggling with a recruiting crisis, it was able to meet its retention goals for 2023. For more on this, Navy Times reporter Diana Stancy joins the episode today. So, Diana, what did retention numbers look like this year? The Navy actually exceeded its goal? So altogether, the Navy kept 110% of sailors that had up to 14 years of service. That translates to 35,175 active duty enlisted sailors who decided to stay in uniform, up from the Navy's goal of 31,823 sailors. So the Navy has this broken down into several different categories based on time and service. So for those with up to six years of service, the Navy retained 117% of sailors. 
For those with six to 10 years of service, the Navy fell just shy of its goal and retained 97% of sailors. And lastly, the Navy retained 107% of sailors with 10 to 14 years of service. So what does this mean for the Navy's recruiting crisis? How does retention, especially these good numbers, play a part in that? Yeah, so as we're looking at this, um, retention and recruitment are basically two sides to the same coin that is end strength. So based on these numbers, this seems to indicate and back up what Navy leaders have been saying about recruitment challenges in terms of connecting with people who aren't really that familiar with what the Navy is about. Last month, Acting Chief of Naval Operations Lisa Franchetti talked about having a national call to service and discuss the need for really kind of sharing what the Navy is about with people who may come from areas that um, don't have large Navy installations like San Diego or Norfolk. Um, I also had a conversation with Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy, James Honey, last month, and he expressed similar sentiments and even shared that he himself had no idea what the Navy was when he was looking to enlist. In his case, he said that what made him want to join the Navy was having a recruiter open up some cruise books. And uh, for Honey, you know, that made him see that he really wanted to see the world and um, the Navy could offer that. Um, here's a quote from our interview. He says, We are the most dominant maritime military force that's ever sailed across the face of this earth in history. You come work for us, and we're going to give you the skills, the training, the opportunity, and all the responsibility that goes with that. So basically looking at this, I think these retention numbers underscore that people who are familiar with the Navy are choosing to remain in service. Um, but the challenge is, you know, the Navy needs to really connect with people who aren't as familiar as they're bringing new people in. So I expect that the Navy will continue to focus on retention efforts and unveil some new initiatives to continue keeping sailors, while it also continues to find new ways to connect with young people who um, aren't familiar with the service at all. Thanks, Diana. In other news, the Pentagon released its annual report on unidentified anomalous phenomena. That's the scientific name for UFOs. For more on this, Military Times reporter and podcast producer Zimone Perez breaks it all down. So, Z, what does the report say and what were the biggest findings? Hey, Jonathan, it's good to be on this side of the microphone for a change. I do exist other than just as a podcast host and producer. One of the things I do monitor, though, is the government's response to analyzing and researching UFOs. And the Pentagon just came out with its yearly, what we call UFO report, report related to unidentified anomalous phenomena. In the most recent report, spanning from August 2022 to April 2023, a total of 291 UAP sightings were analyzed. And in total, across the past three years of reports, that brings the number of reviews to 801 sightings. This didn't all just take place between 2021 to 2023. It dates back to 1996 for those who still have proof or evidence or any sort of data relating to these unidentified objects in the sky or sea or space. The report said that none of these UAP sightings have been determined to be of extraterrestrial origin. They are not aliens so far that we know. Sorry to the to the believers out there. But also these UAPs haven't been a perceived threat. They do have the potential to be a threat if they fly too close to aircraft or whatnot. But there haven't been instances where the UAP is threatening an aircraft. Despite all these sightings, you know, 800 is a pretty large number, 291, not even for a whole year. That's more than one a day. But a very small percentage of these sightings demonstrated characters of interest that would catch the attention of these researchers in this Pentagon UFO office. That would be, you know, 
characteristics like traveling at really high speeds or having unknown morphologies, you know, defying the laws of physics with how quickly it starts and stops. The vast majority of these sightings have ordinary characteristics that have readily explainable origins. And so this comes as more developments are happening into how the government is responding and researching these anomalies? Yeah, so one of the big complaints about the government response is where does the everyman or woman go to provide their data? The chain of command for military pilots or military personnel who experience these objects has been, you know, kind of murky, un unsure. And so in September, the Pentagon's UFO office launched its own website designed to serve as the public-facing portion of the government's research and analysis of these UFOs. The reporting portion is not up yet. This is where all the reports are publicly available. But the site will eventually allow users to report UFO sightings all the way back to, if they have data, back to 1945. On the congressional side, there are a couple laws in this year's uh, defense policy bill that are hoping to change and provide more transparency on how the government reports on these items to the general public, because there is a lot of a lot of intrigue from the public. Like I say, you know, not every person's going to be in Ukraine, or not every person is going to be on an aircraft carrier in the Indo-Pacific, but every person has a sky above them, you know? And one House amendment for the National Defense Authorization Act seeks to provide greater transparency for UAP sightings. Officials would have 180 days after the passage of the bill of the legislation to provide documents if the legislation is eventually adopted. On the Senate side, Majority Leader Schumer introduced an amendment to the Senate's defense bill that would give a review board the authority to review and declassify government documents related to unidentified phenomena. So this is all pending, of course, a functioning government and making sure we have a House Speaker that can conduct business and get bills passed through both chambers of Congress. Thanks, Z. For more conversations like this one, please like and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Also on the radar for today, Defense Department planners aren't yet considering targeted pay boosts for junior service members. That's despite interest from lawmakers in providing more financial help for young military families. Members of the House Armed Services Committee's Special Quality of Life panel met this week with Pentagon leaders conducting a periodic review of troops' pay and benefits. Work from that group is expected to be completed in late January 2025. Representative Don Bacon chairs the special panel. He said he expected Congress to act on the issue of military pay improvements well before then. He expressed concern that Defense Department officials aren't pushing for quicker improvements to junior troops' pay. House Republicans already advanced legislation this year guaranteeing that even the lowest-ranking service members make at least $31,000. But that plan is connected to a GOP defense funding plan with other controversial items like abortion bans, diversity and inclusion policy repeals, and other culture war issues. The White House has come out against both the overall budget plan and called the move premature given the ongoing compensation review. The House panel has held a series of meetings with military families, outside advocates, and Pentagon planners since the start of the summer. That's all part of an effort to better understand service members' potential financial concerns and challenges. Troops are scheduled to receive a 5.2% pay raise in January, the largest annual boost in 22 years. And now, here are some other stories that we are hearing chirps about. Reuters reported that officials said yesterday that U.S. forces in Syria brought down two drones that were targeting them, leading to some minor injuries. This comes in the wake of coalition forces 
being slightly injured in Iraq in a spate of drone attacks. A militant video and weapons seized by Israel show that Hamas fighters likely fired North Korean weapons during their October 7th assault on Israel. That's despite Pyongyang's denials that it arms the militant group. That's all according to two South Korean officials, two experts on North Korean arms, and an Associated Press analysis of weapons Israel captured on the battlefield. The Associated Press reported that Ohio Representative Jim Jordan is not giving up his run for Speaker of the House. Jordan failed to secure the gavel in a second vote on Wednesday. And a Russian-American journalist working for a U.S. government-funded media company has been detained in Russia and charged with failing to register as a foreign agent. And on this day in history, in 1964, former Commander-in-Chief President Herbert Hoover died. That's it for us this morning. To get more of the top stories and breaking news, go to defensenews.com slash EBB to subscribe to the Early Bird Brief newsletter. Please give us a like, rating, and a comment wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow us on social media at defense underscore news and at military times. The Early Bird Brief is hosted by me, Jonathan Lairfeld, and produced by Zimone Z. Perez. Today's episode features stories by Noah Robertson, Diana Stancy, Zimone Perez, and Leo Shane III. Our editor-in-chief is Mike Roos. Have a great day.